A quick disclaimer, opinions of host and guest do not represent the views or opinions of functional movement systems. Always consult your physician before beginning any exercise program. This general information is not intended to replace your healthcare professional. Welcome to the Movement Podcast. This show is all about movement. We tackle it from different angles, bring on guests, answer questions, go on a few tangents, and give practical advice, giving you guys a better idea of how you can optimize the human body to be the best it can be. Let's preview what's coming up in this episode. Welcome to the season three premiere of the Movement Podcast. We are so excited to be back. In this episode, Gray and Lee open up the mailbag from our listeners. We wanted to start the season off by answering some questions you all have been asking. Today, we discuss the guys' opinions on chiropractic adjustments, life hacks they use, coaching your own movement dysfunction, and their favorite forms of manual therapy, and more. We've got a packed show today, so let's get rolling with the Movement Podcast, powered by FMS. All right, guys, thank you for being here today for the podcast. Uh, Today's episode is going to be all about our listeners. We've gotten some questions that have come in from our audience uh, on Instagram, as well as a survey that we actually put out last year, and then our website where we have a comment box where they can submit questions. Um, We have some great results, actually, and our listeners, uh, we have this little pocket of people in Lake Stevens, Washington. Do you know anyone in that area? Lake Stevens, Washington. It's outside of Seattle. I've been to we've been we've, we've been done to a lot of work. Yeah, we've definitely done a lot of courses, a lot of education in Seattle. Um, there's an island right off of, right off of uh, right from Seattle. I went in one time and taught a class. Um, I'm not sure. I can't think of. Oh, well, it's, uh, they might still be listening. Yeah, yeah <laughs> they're so. paying attention. So say hello to them. Uh, we also have a lot of people listening in Centennial, uh, Colorado, right outside of Denver. So it's a big population. Okay. And then Atlanta, Georgia, is a big supporter of the podcast as well. So oh, some thanks, people guys. to kind of shout out to. Um, all right, we're going to be starting out with uh, a survey question that we got. Um, can I coach myself when it comes to movement pattern? disbalance or imbalance dysfunction, I think is what they probably mean. Lee, do you have any opinions about that? Yeah. I mean, you know, right now, obviously, um, over the last 12 months, we've all been having to figure out ways to train ourselves and, and, you know, what's the best way to do stuff on our own without a professional. Um, and I think the first question I would have back to that person is how do you know you have an imbalance? What, what made you aware that you've got that imbalance? So we don't want to make too many assumptions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're doing certain things, stand on one foot, rotate to one side or whatever it is, and you do understand you have an imbalance, it is going to be a little tricky just coaching you through. However, I, in my opinion, you know, you, it can be done. You just got to focus on that one side. Um, but I think the other, the other thing I would say is you also need to dive a little deeper and figure out what's creating that imbalance. So if you're in the car and you're, you're driving all day and, and you rest your right arm on the steering wheel and your left arm dangling down by the side, and that's kind of the position you're in most of the day, or you're rotating to the left a lot more than you're rotating to the right throughout the day, a few little exercises aren't going to combat six or eight hours of, you know, creating the imbalances. Right. So I think that's the other side of that. So two things I'll have, and I'll kick it over to Gray, is, is you know, one, ensure that you know that there is an imbalance, which it sounds like this person does. And before you just assume an exercise or some recommendation is going to work, figure out in your daily activities what may be creating it. Pausing it. 
No, that's 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 good. And secondly, I think some of our biggest movement problems operate at a subconscious level. If you're aware of your most annoying habit to other people, then you can probably also get yourself through a physical bad habit. But I think that that movement problems, imbalances, dysfunction are either driven from a repetitive behavior that you don't even realize is causing it or an underlying structural problem. Okay. If, if you have got a nerve root irritation, a disc, a facet problem in your back, that will drive your behaviors. You will try to avoid pain. You will, you'll do things. So if there's a structural problem under that, any exercise in the world is probably going to exacerbate it. And if at best won't make it better. If it's a behavior that you're going to challenge, then you really need to put check your ego, don't go to the internet and ask questions and really get invested in that. And there's a great documentation of this. And Tim Ferriss published it in The 4-Hour Body. Tim uh, asked me to put him on a functional path, but he said, I will not be movement screened and I'm not doing a self-screen. I want you to point me at functional exercises that will elevate my awareness. And Tim actually did everything we said. And it took him a month using uh, four key exercises, chops and lifts, uh, a single leg deadlift and a Turkish getup because of the global amount of movement here. You're doing a lot of movement, triplanar. And I kept saying to Tim in our correspondence, make sure that you're balanced on each side. One side shouldn't be worse than the other. And which is your worst pattern and where are you making progress? And over about a month, Tim actually said in that book chapter that I feel stronger and more put together than ever. And I actually think that that was probably better than me screening Tim and just saying, you got a tight left hip and a tight right ankle because he invested for a month. Most people don't have the tenacity or grit that Tim Ferriss does in the self-experiment. So the screen saves you a lot of time up front. But if you got the grit to learn it the hard way to say, I wonder why my single leg deadlift is worse on right than left. And it's not just I can't engage my glute. There's a lot more mm-hmm. going on here. Then, then it's a it's a very good journey, and I think it creates a more sustainable functional product. Meaning, when the weight comes off slow, it usually doesn't come back on so fast. When the weight comes off fast, that means you figured out how to um, moderate your diet, but you haven't really changed your behaviors. So, I would commend anybody that would try to explore this, but just realize your worst subconscious habit is not at your conscious control. You can't control it consciously. So setting the baseline with the screen and then revisiting that in a month is it will let you know if you can do it yourself or not. So the the answer is maybe. <laughs> well, great, great. One of the misconceptions that, you know, as we talk about asymmetries and imbalances in the body is that people assume you've got to be perfectly balanced. And that's pretty much impossible Mm -hmm. with us being right or left-hand dominant. And for a lot of people who create these dysfunction and imbalances because of their behaviors, it's not going to happen overnight. And the expectation should not be that everything I do on my right side is going to be equal to my left, right? But the expectation is should, one, don't let it get worse. So whatever your baseline is, let's not let it get worse. Let's make sure that we are saying, okay, this is where I am today. Whether you do a half kneeling, whatever it is, get in half kneeling on your right, get in half kneeling on your left. Left side's worse. That's me. Personally, that is me, right? Mm -hmm. Ray, I've got a history on my my hip, right? But I don't want that to get worse. And as I get older, if you don't address some of those underlying behaviors you mentioned, it's going to get worse. So at least may not expect it to get 
balanced out completely. But let's start somewhere. Let's make little changes. And hopefully after a month, you can see some, some positive benefits from it. And then from that point, that's your new baseline. Yep. So when looking at, you know, your, your balance and, and what, you know, right or left is better or worse, should we be able to tell a difference in our upper body and our lower body because there is that right hand or left hand dominance is like, is your upper body going to be more imbalanced than maybe what you would expect your lower portion to be? That's a great question. And the problem is people make that assumption and you don't know which one is driving it. Is an imbalance in my lower body driving an imbalance in my body, upper body, or vice versa? It almost goes back to gray your behaviors. It depends on what you're doing throughout the day. Which one is driving it? I know for a fact, we've talked about this before, I broke my leg when I was eight, nine years old, and that created an imbalance for me. Yes. So that's what's driving some of my imbalances in my upper body. And I think that's the thing. Great thing. So, so to summarize, what's driving this movement dysfunction? If it's structural, you're probably going to need some professional intervention and help in that baseline, whether it be an x-ray, an MRI, an SFMA, movement screen, grip test, set, a, set an objective baseline, one that's free of your opinion and ego. Um, if it is a behavior, then how will you know the, the behavior has changed? And that's where we get back to, to Lee's, Lee's baseline uh, of this thing. But I honestly think that too many people reach for complex exercises when simple available exercises can can help you do the same thing. And that's why I didn't get real fancy with Tim. A lot of people don't know, didn't know what a Turkish getup was, but it's it's a sun salutation with weight. Basically, mm-hmm. you're moving through multiple planes, multiple patterns. And if you're aware uh, of that left and right, it'll either get better or it won't. And if it won't, there's one other elephant in the room here. Many people, and, and I've talked to Kelly Starrett about this with his previous work in Mobility Wad and, and the Ready State right now. Many people ask a mobility question, a stability question, or dysfunctional question without letting you know they also have pain associated with it. Those are two completely different things. One's a donkey, one's a zebra. If you've got dysfunction and you've got movement pain that's reproducible, then you have a healthcare problem till we prove you don't. If you just can't touch your toes or balance as well on the right leg, then I honestly think you could pursue that, but don't pursue it with an agenda that you already know the solution. Just try some things and see what modulates that. And to your point, when we see the right and left handedness creating an imbalance, that's an imbalance in skill. Just because you're right handed, I wouldn't expect your left plank to be worse. And just because you like to kick a ball with your right foot, I wouldn't expect your right or left balance to be different. So fundamental core activities that have been with you since you were two years old shouldn't show me which hand or foot dominance you have. However, riding and kicking a ball or throwing a ball would. So the skills that you do shouldn't infect your core or your fundamental movements. And when they do, that's when FMS gets a little worried about that. So, All right. So up next, we have from at Chris Kelsey Training. Uh, this is an Instagram uh, question that we got. How do you handle those who don't buy into the program or even want to change it? So I'm guessing he's referring to his athletes or clients who aren't buying into kind of the FMS corrective strategy. Yeah, I mean, especially with uh, athletes and high, high performers, they don't get why they need to put down the kettlebell or put down the, 
you know, some of the big weights they want to lift. This people assume that, okay, a basketball player walks in, he's got to work on his power, mm-hmm. right? Or a baseball player walks in and thinks he's got to work on his hip, you know, rotation and the swing. Um, and I think it is difficult. There's no, you know, I wish I had their magic bullet, but I think the the issue for us is it goes down to education and awareness. I mean, we've been saying that a lot. Grace said it in the previous uh, question we answered, it has to get back to that awareness. And I think if you can show, again, this is where the positive feedback has been for me over the last 20 some odd years is when you bring somebody in and you show how much of a difference there is on the right and left of something as simple as standing on one foot, then they get that how much that is going to impact the bigger, larger things they want to do. If a person has a and they want to work on power. Let's take our basketball player. Basketball player walks in, wants to work on power. He does a single leg hop on one leg, and it's great. No problem. He does a great job. Single leg hop on the other leg, and it's horrible. Well, then you need to dive a little deeper, and you realize that this, this individual may have a major ankle mobility dysfunction. And now explaining that to them is much easier on why you need to work on ankle mobility versus going to work on their power or having them do a power clean or some of these high-level activities. So don't feel obligated to explain to them all these tests. Just say, hey, we're going to run through some tests. I don't know where it's going to take us. We're just going to see what happens on the other end. And this is going to be the best place to start you on your workout. Forget the word. You know, one of the things, Greg, I've, you know, we said it, we're part of the problem. So I'll just throw that out there. But this whole idea about corrective exercise has just created created a monster. And that's where a lot of these individuals just, you know, well, I got to do corrective exercise. What do you mean? And then that creates a lot more questions. No, I'm giving you a workout. This is your workout. No, and, and you know, if, if you're using exercise to change your health, I like to call that rehabilitation. If you're using exercise to change your wellness or your base function, I do call that corrective because there's something you're not doing well. And when you're doing exercise to change your fitness level, I call that conditioning because now we're working on often. And to, to articulate what Lee just said, um, I don't think you can outstatement somebody's bad opinion of this or somebody, uh, I don't think you can out information the biggest skeptic in the room. At some point, I will either say, all right, let's do it your way. Show me how we can change this in the next 10 minutes. Let's do it your way. Okay. And I'm operating on a quote that I've used all my life, to myself and people I have conflict with, a fool who persists in his folly will soon become wise. Is that your opinion? Let's take it to the nth degree and see how measurable your opinion is on the other side of this. But I honestly think with media being so accessible and information being so widespread and polarizing, take the information that seems to be the best evidence. What's the experience we just had? And that's what Lee was talking about. We're going to do an experience that doesn't require me or you to talk. Is your left and right side equal? And if we're expecting you to jump well, would we expect an equal contribution of both your legs? Because if they're not contributing equally, we already have a crack in the foundation of jumping mechanics. Mm -hmm. So I often like to not over information my, my patients, my clients, my athletes. Here's what I think. Okay. Do you agree or disagree? Well, I don't know. 
we can do it your way or do it mine. Here's the experience I'd like us to go through now. I'd like us to vet this movement thing. But I don't need you to have delayed gratification for six weeks. We're coming right back to your single leg stance, your squat, your plank on the left, whatever it is. And we either change that or not. I'm totally exposed and transparent here during this experience. If you follow me and we do a toe touch progression or we try to fix your deadlift mechanics or whatever it is, I'm totally exposed. On the back side of that, we will measure and reflect. So information, experience, and reflection. And if your shtick doesn't have three equal slices of pie, you're talking too much. As simply as that. And you're, you're not even convinced yourself. And you're trying to convince somebody else. So tell them what you think. Ask them what they think. If they don't agree, which one should we do? We'll do yours and retest. We'll do mine and retest. And it doesn't take as long as you think. Mm-hmm. Because when most people see that level of transparency and confidence, they're like, all right, we'll do it your way. And I'm only five minutes away from being right most of the time. So it's the, it's that the two things right there, Grace. It's experience and the awareness. It's putting putting the athlete, the patient, the client in the position that they can experience and become aware without saying a lot. I think with the amount of video education, with the amount of stuff being thrown out there through all these forms of media, which we're a part of right here, right? It's it's easy to try to outsmart them. Mm-hmm. And just talk and just try to let, let, let them know how smart you are. And don't feel obligated to do that. If you got all this information rolling around your head, just take them through a few things, let them experience it. And if you're good and confident, that'll take care of itself. No, it's good because when, when somebody has a flexibility or balance or motor control problem, and you simply look at them and said, listen, try harder, make your leg raise better make your balance better. And they're like, I can't. Then don't we both agree that this is outside of conscious mm-hmm. control? And there are different tools to hack into your subconscious running of your body. And that's sort of what we figured out because the reset that, that we like to see, that quick response we like to see in movement, most people are, well, how long is that going to last? It doesn't matter. It just demonstrated this situation is plastic, not static and not stuck in concrete. There was a change how can we foster that change so you can start growing in a different direction? And so when we see these really hard movement problems and you can't change it, then we got to admit there's a subconscious driver or something in you is broken. Let's figure it out. All right, moving on. We've got a little bit of a fun one here. Um, this is a question that we received on our survey. Do you have any life hacks? And I think this can go in any direction you want it to. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, one of my big life hacks was, uh, you know, as I got older, I don't r- respond to uh, drinking as well as I used to. Um, but, I, you know, for me, over the years, I think, you know, one of my biggest ones, this is going to be a, a different, is, you know, um, water, hydration. hydration. For me, hydration has been a major, major, um, just, you know, I'm constantly drinking water throughout the day. And over the last, I would say, 15 years, maybe, or 20, I'd say go back to 20 years. I mean, I didn't drink water hardly at all. And now sweet I tea. think that's one thing. It was all sweet tea, right? I, you know, I <laughs> grew up on sweet tea down here in the South, but I, I, you know, I can't handle that sweet tea. I've never been able to handle the sweet tea as much, but uh, diet Cokes, things like that. I mean, I think just switching over and, you know, for me personally, but I think, you know, drink a lot of water throughout the day to clean you out. Um, uh, last year, you and I both started playing around with the aura ring, and I've been unbelievably jealous of Lee since we've been <clears throat> comparing our data because 
his conscious must be clear because he sleeps very well. I don't sleep well at all and never Uh have, but I always had opinions about it. And I always thought I was tough enough to get by on less sleep than most people. And after, you know, uh, 50 and after a few surgeries, you realize how much interrupted sleep you have. So instead of just getting more information about it, I wanted to basically see what my sleep was like at night. And I think the the aura ring uh, helped me look at sleep and then look at some of those things that influence my sleep. And one of them is, you know, uh, watch your caffeine, especially after noon. And what is your ritual before you go to bed and what's your sleep environment like? And every time I've used the information and then had that feedback, I've learned something. So I've hacked my way into maybe 15% better sleep simply by being aware of how bad it was. What's that cutoff point for you and having caffeine in the afternoon? Like I probably have a cup every day at 3 p.m., but you know, is it like 4 p.m. or did you really see anything after 12 you were having a difference in your sleep? I mean, all right, let, me, let me add to that. My question would be, why do you feel the need to have caffeine at three? To you, three o'clock, but to Gray in the afternoon, why do you feel the need to do it? Because I don't feel the need to do it. Because in the past, I think I, and I've learned this since I've been intermittent fasting and have taken more of a keto approach, more getting way more of my calories from fat than mm-hmm. protein or carb, but, but good sources of fat. I realized that if my energy level is sustained by more of a ketogenic burning of fat than a fluctuation in blood sugar, because that caffeine doesn't just affect your, uh, uh, as you as a stimulant, it also affect, affects the way you use your insulin and the way okay. you process uh, food and stuff like that. So what I would notice is I can get by on caffeine or I can get by on good nutrition. The difference is I go to sleep, I get start getting tired and go to sleep around nine or 10 if I don't use the caffeine. And sometimes I'm watching TV at midnight if I use the caffeine and I can't account for anything else. So if you're using caffeine as a dietary hack, so you're not eating, Eat an avocado and see if it gets you the same thing. You know, eat a handful of walnuts, uh, make a shake with chia seeds, use some uh, higher fat as opposed to higher protein and see how that does. And you'll train your body to stay in that ketogenic state and you won't feel those valleys that make you reach for the caffeine. Because I still want to do it, but one of my hacks, because I like my morning thing and sometimes I do like a little caffeine in the afternoon is a better source of caffeine, which would be like a yerba mate tea or something. A little stronger than green tea, a little easier on your system than coffee. So, you know, cold turkey, uh, not fun for anybody, but I've been able to get rid of my morning coffee and do yerba mate tea. And if I eat something and still want a little boost, sometimes I'll just exercise. Sometimes I'll have the yerba mate. It's, It's not an absolute, but getting off the coffee and getting better sleep have been, you know, two sides of the same penny, probably. Well, when it came to actually measuring your sleep, um, the Aura Ring, the Apple Watch, the you know Fitbit, a lot of these devices do do this. How long have you been wearing the Aura Ring? And you know, why did you go with the ring instead of maybe a watch or something that other people you know tend to use a lot of? I was uh, allowed him to buy it. <laughs> I, I told, I, yeah, the I told competition between the two of you using the same. Well, product. I lost my wedding ring, which is a major problem. So I replaced it with the aura ring. Yeah. And that, then, that's true. And then I replaced my wedding ring with the aura ring, which <laughs> made for a lot of silent dinners. Cause Danielle was trying to figure out what's, what's this all about? And I'm like, it's a ring. I'm still wearing a ring. Still so. 
but but I was wearing the Garmin uh, Phoenix, one of the Phoenix numbers, and it did do a sleep monitor, but it didn't give me a really good breakdown between deep sleep. The newer models do, okay. and I think having a breakdown of your sleep quality is almost as good as having an accounting of your sleep quantity. And just like FMS, we look at movement, quality, quantity, and anything. I think it's good to have that breakdown. And at the time, the technology and the heart rate variability that Aura Ring did not only gave you a better breakdown of where you spent your sleep time, but it also gave you a state of readiness that I wasn't getting from the previous version of the watch. So I still think the the Aura Ring is probably not going to be your best exercise device, but it's a great 24-hour sleep activity state of readiness tracker. But if you really want real-time feedback from an exercise device, I think you're still going to be wearing a chest strap basically linked to a, mm-hmm. to a um, you know, wearable. Yeah, the, other, the only other thing I'd add to the life hack question is um, for me, I think not feeling obligated to go kick your ass in the gym four or five days a week. Because that's one thing that back going on 15, 20 years ago, that's what I was doing a lot of is, is lifting, lifting heavy, doing the kind of the, you know, ass kicking workouts. And as I got older, feeling like, you know what, a good walk today is probably better suited for me and, and doing more, you know, lower level, lower stressful things um, is a, the other thing that kind of, and giving myself permission to do that is probably the biggest thing for me personally over the last, say, five to 10 years um, has probably helped me out. No, that's, that's a good point. And I think all of us in, in health and, and rehabilitation, fitness and stuff like that, I think we feel obligated to have that formal high intensity compartment of exercise when really most of us could have a more well-rounded mm-hmm. form of life if we had better activity levels other than our exercise. Mm-hmm. I, I feel very bad for people who may be in a situation where their only physical activity is their exercise hour or 35 minutes. And, and, you know, I think getting outside and doing something at a mild level, whether it just be walking or, or some other activity that doesn't have sets, reps and compartmentalized activity attached to it is actually, uh, invigorating because I mean, we probably got more people right now trying to exercise than ever before in the world. And yet we've got some of the most unhealthy people in the world, you know, Unhealthy, but trying to stay fit is probably not going to end well. For over 30 years, Functional Movement Systems has been the leader in movement health. We've developed a system that bridges the gap between fitness, performance, and healthcare professionals. Our screen and assessment tools help pros set the course for their clients and patients and gets them moving well so they can continue to move often. The functional movement screen is the foundation of our system and checks vital signs in movement competency through patterns. From youth or professional athletics to the elderly population and everyone in between, the screen is your starting point. The presence of pain is a vital sign we consider in our system. The selective functional movement assessment geared toward healthcare professionals is the diagnostic assessment for individuals experiencing pain during movement or with the screen. Once proper treatment is administered by clinicians, the patients are cleared to resume regular activity. The screen is once again at play to set the movement baseline. But what's next? When an individual displays competency in the screen, it's time to advance to another level. The fundamental capacity screen, which tests for fitness, performance, and capacity. 
The system identifies whether individuals warrant additional rehabilitation or corrective exercise, or if they're ready for performance-based activity. Decide what course is right for you and get started on your professional journey today. All right, uh, another question that we've gotten, are there any new techniques or theories in the athletic training world that you are familiar with or you think are new and upcoming that are worthy for people to kind of put some time and effort into? Um, I do know that that with our interaction with Sue Falzone and some of the athletic trainers we mm-hmm. work with, athletic trainers are now doing dry needling as a, as a manual technique. Um, I was very, very uh, pleasantly surprised when I saw more and more athletic training curriculums embracing the work of Brian Mulligan. Just some very efficient mobilizations that with a little imagination can become a significantly better tape job or, or exercise philosophy. So if, if I were training a group of athletic trainers to go out and work with a specific population of athletic or physical people, I would make sure that they had the SFMA and the Y balance test is two feedback loops as well as the FMS. And I would also make sure that they had very, very, what I would consider top shelf manual therapy techniques like mobilization and dry needling, because all the the stuff in between the modalities, the tape, the brace, and even a basic exercise knowledge, most athletic trainers got that. Mm-hmm. They, they usually have to defer to a physical therapist for spinal stuff or heavy manual therapy. And in many cases, I don't think that's necessary. If they know how to evaluate and they know how to treat and they know how to do test retest, these people can be the tip of the spear of many of the problems that don't even need to be pulled completely out of the athletic training room and sent over to rehab for a long sabbatical only to be sent back. I I like to share that information, but you got to know your stuff. You got to know your anatomy. You can't coast through this stuff. It's, it's more invasive. So you need to know your stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think taping techniques have changed much in the past 20 years? I know like you can buy kinetic tape now, like Dick sporting goods or something. And it comes with this, fold out piece of paper with all these instructions for like a normal person to tape my own ankle or knee or back or whatever. And I remember opening up this package and like, well, I'm just going to wrap it around my thumb for when I'm lifting the barbell. But for somebody else that, that looks so foreign to me. Like I couldn't imagine trusting myself to tape like a, a back muscle or something have, have techniques in that way kind of changed in the past 20 years or yeah, has it become that, more that, complex? Right. As a, if we're talking certified athletic trainers, kind of going off a little bit of what Gray was saying, I think there's a huge opportunity um, with the state of health right now and with only having a limited amount of time um, to treat them in a clin- clinical setting and then trying to transition them back to participation, there's a big gap. Mm-hmm. And, I don't th- and I don't think that gap has been effectively filled at this point. And I think the athletic trainers out there can fill those gaps quite well in any setting, not just in the clinic, not feel like you got to work in, you know, at a, at a clinic, but whether it's corporate wellness, whether it's um, going into a gym and because again, how many people walking into a gym now that have pain? Well, an athletic mm-hmm. trainer can be that person that triages those people, people before they get into um, going into it and lifting. And I think that's where I see there's an opportunity as a, as a certified athletic trainer for that profession. Um, honestly, it, it frustrates me quite, quite, it really frustrates me because I think too much they're pushed or pigeonholed into that clinical setting mm-hmm. 
where at the end of the day, they're not coming from a, a, an athletic trainer who's worked with some of the top physical therapists. And I hate to say that in front of him. Um, yeah, but you did, I know, um, <laughs> going in and feeling like you have to work there. You're not at the end of the day going to go toe to toe, um, as an athletic trainer with some of those therapists. And I'm not saying your, your skills, mm-hmm. it's reimbursement. You know, it's, it's, it's what you're going to get paid to a degree. So I'm not, you know, don't all the athletic trainers that throw stones at me. I'm not saying your skills aren't any better than some of the physical therapists out there. What I'm saying is you're because of the regulations, you're not going to get paid as much. I don't think that'll change. And that's where the frustrations where you're always trying to go into that world where what you may even need to be considering, there's plenty of other opportunities out there that you could be the head honcho, so to speak in mm-hmm. those areas. Um, so I think that's one thing kind of going going with, you know, as far as the trend or, or what's kind of new, I don't think it's new. I just think there's an opportunity that has not been effectively filled. And I think the certified athletic trainer can fill that void. Now, going to your tape question, God, I hope so, because there's so <laughs> much, you know, as a, as a former athletic trainer and as a, as a former instructor in the athletic training curriculum, having to teach um, all the different ways to tape you know, at the end of the day, you're basically, all you're doing is, is putting a bandaid on the problem. Mm-hmm. And again, I get it. I mean, I know you've got to tape somebody's ankle, somebody's elbow, somebody's shoulder, somebody's knee so they can play their sport. Okay. That's fine. I get that, but that's not helping them a long term. And when you get to the kinesio tape and the, all these other mm-hmm. things are, that you're doing, you know, it's so funny going to a 5k and seeing all these people with tape all over their bodies. Only thing that tells me is they're hurt. You know, they're, they're in pain. Because most of those tape jobs are doing nothing but putting a Band-Aid on the problem. So it's okay if you're trying to train and you're, you've got a CrossFit competition or a 5K that weekend, great. Put the tape on, get through the run, but don't rely on the tape to help you be successful. Because mm-hmm. it's just going to get you from point A to point B. It's not going to make point A to point B any better. And, and Ashley, a great way for clinicians, athletic trainers, uh, and everybody to discuss tape is... I think kinesio tape is just as much a fashion statement for some people. That is not the intent of the company. That is not the intent of an elastic-based tape. But the fact that it's multicolored and on the shelf for everybody Leopard means... Leopard print, zebra. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what Lee and I arrived at back when he and I were, were working together, and, and to, to restate his point... I trust his triage. He trusts my treatment. We get along fine. He knows the coach, the parent, the environment, and the situation better than I do. I'll do a deep dive on the assessment that he didn't have time to, and it comes out the other end. But when it came time for us to test our tape jobs, the, the, the replicating the mulligan tape jobs, Luca tape on a patella, taping a shoulder, is we had a movement baseline. We did a treatment, and we taped them, and they moved differently with the tape in a favorable way. So I would do a Y balance test on you. I would do a deep squat part of the screen on you. I would do a shoulder pattern on you. And I proved to you within a five minute window, this is what it feels like with the tape. This is, this is what it feels like without the tape. This is what it feels like with the tape. You can feel it. I can see it. Let's wear the tape. And I have basically taped somebody's knee had them do a step up on a box and they felt no different. And I alcoholed up the whole tape job, removed the whole thing right in front of everybody with egg on my face and redid the tape job. And I tell everybody I ever teach the tape, you take that tape off if it doesn't do what your hands did. So I can have you step up on a stool and hold your knee. 
You're like, oh, that feels better. If I can't get the tape to do that, you're not wearing tape mm-hmm. out of here. So, and, the, so the real grade, the goal, the goal for the tape, that's that sort of tape. There's two different types, right? There's the old athletic training tape that's white that you know there's just to pretty much lock your joint in place. Then you're talking about the tape, Luca tape, kinesio tape. That's there to simply facilitate the movement, the muscle, making sure you get a little bit more proprioceptive enhancement, so you can then exercise at a better or more qualitative state. Exactly. So you can get through the movement. It's not there to be the crutch that you need to go out and play for six months. Exactly. That and there's the that's where the problem comes into play. And and so what we started noticing, especially with some of the research on the classic ankle tape jobs, most of those were made, as Lee said, to get you through a game, not to get you through training. If if you need tape to train, you must prove that that tape is as important to your training as the equipment you're using and the movement pattern you're exploring. And so the tape actually, as Lee said, must facilitate rehabilitation or protect the immediate situation. And so tell me why you're doing the tape. Are you doing it to improve movement or safely restrict movement so they can participate in a small slice of time? You know, some athletes aren't coming off the field. You Mm -hmm. tape them. You're, you're actually locking up the ankle, transferring a lot of unnecessary motion to the knee, the knee, but they can handle it for 15 minutes. If they get addicted to that tape and finish the season with it, I think you're part of the problem. Okay. So this one comes in from at Lane Palm DC. Um, I'm guessing she's a chiropractor. Yep. As a rehab minded Cairo, I'm curious what your opinion is on adjustments. Uh, they work. <laughs> Pro adjustments. What's the goal? What is the goal? Because I do, I do think chiropractors get a bad rep mm-hmm. a lot of times. Is that you know you're going to rack them and crack them? Are you just going to go and say, okay, we're going to adjust you, Ashley, but you need to come in and get your adjustment once a week for the next ten years? That's not that's not a good use of manipulation, right? I I, I always had this all the way back to my early athletic training room experience. I'm like, how come I have to stretch these athletes, but they lift weights for themselves? I don't lift weights for them. Why have I got to stretch them? And so if somebody is dependent on me for their flexibility, if somebody's dependent on me for their neck adjustment, I have to have a prognosis, a long-term goal. So one of the things that once I got to a certain level as a manual therapist with manipulation, dry needling, and all those things at my disposal, I don't want to do this a lot. This is, this is a you know calculated strike, and I'm going to reset your mechanism. But I am passionate about the reinforcement that I send you home with so I don't have to do that again. So if you can demonstrate a significant change in local movement, you know, my neck moves better and my plank and deep squat just got better because my neck is now part of the system, not not a Mm -hmm. thing, then you've demonstrated it. Now, demonstrate to me that you can remove yourself successfully or you could be creating unnecessary dependence. So use that adjustment talent that you have to make your point. But I'll be honest with you, nowhere else in nature, the animals need adjustment. They just move with integrity. And when they don't move with integrity, they get a life lesson that they don't plan on revisiting. So it's nice that we have that skill set, but I do see people getting very dependent. It's like if if your kid's still on training wheels and they're 15 years old, they're not a cyclist. <laughs> right, it's no different than our, the previous questions about tape, dry needling, anything else. It, it's it's get you in a place where you can be independent of those 
needs of the whether it's manipulation, needling, tape, or anything. It's trying to get you in a position where you you got that reset. You it helped. It certainly needs to be done, but let's not need it for the rest of your life. No, in in believe it or not, even in the strength and conditioning world now, there's a lot of people who figured out ways to reset these primitive reflexes. And it does. It makes an appreciable change in bad movement really quick. But the question we must ask ourselves is, why is this person defaulting to dysfunction? What's driving that? Is it a structural problem, behavioral problem? And at some point, if I keep treating this for you, it's actually going to go wrong. Meaning if I keep manipulating you in one direction all the time, I'm not going to be able to go to that well that often. What if... Ashley, I was flicking my finger right at your eye saying, don't blink, don't blink, don't blink. You could probably force yourself not to blink, but is that a safe way to right. go out into a dust storm? I don't think so. So, so we've got to respect these reflexes. And if the person's default is dysfunction, that's when we got to go deeper. And, you know, the SFMA has shown me how many times I don't have to manipulate. I just need to do a toe touch progression. So I use on my manual therapy skills um, as a as a very sharp knife that I only want to use once, twice, three times. And if I'm doing it more than that, I'm actually going for the driver now. And that's why in many times the SFMA, we're not manipulating the area of your body or adjusting the area of body that you're pointing at. We're actually going somewhere else in your body and finding a dysfunction that's driving that. And as Greg Rose you know, chiropractor that's on our team says is the pain isn't necessarily where the problem is. The pain is where your focus is. Our job is to go where the problem is. So making those adjustments in areas that they're not pointing to is sometimes the most elegant use of that skill. So going back on manual therapies, we also received a question. What are your favorite forms of manual therapy technique? And for what did you use them in an, as an example? Um, I consider adjustment, manipulation, mobilization, and dry needling some of our most aggressive and highly skilled techniques. Done right, they, they can save you weeks. Done wrong, they can get you into malpractice. Now, we have what I would call the lighter techniques, and this is not undermining them at all. The tissue scraping, the vibration, the cupping, and deep tissue massage— these are great things, but they help us dump tension. Whereas uh, the the manipulation and the dry needling, more aggressive, more invasive. And I often combine these things. I'll do some massage or tissue scraping prior to needling or after needling just to sort of desensitize the area and realize that I'm treating way more than one tissue. All right. In those two buckets, you got the aggressive and the non-aggressive. Where does mulligan techniques fall into that? Uh they straddle the fence. They're unbelievably powerful, but I would be willing to show somebody a mulligan technique and walk away knowing that they had their, their basics down. I'm not going to do that with a neck manipulation or dry needling. So I really think that mulligan of the softer techniques is unbelievably powerful with a feedback loop built right in. I can't, I can't sing the praises of that enough. And I actually had a chance, and Lee and I took a couple of Brian Mulligan courses together from Brian Mulligan. And uh, I think it's if you're not into manual therapy, it's probably as invasive as you can get and still be in your comfort zone and safe. 
So I'll bite as a non-professional. Okay. What is a mulligan technique? Mulligan technique is basically mobilization with movement. So if I could describe it, instead of me moving your ankle for you, I actually stabilize your ankle into a better alignment. Even though your muscles are pulling the horse's head one way, I grab the reins and pull them the other way and say, now let's dorsiflex closed chain. And you're like, oh, that feels better. Well, that opens up. Let's do a few mobs with your own movement. So in most manipulation, I hold you and I move you. In a a mulligan, I hold you and you move you. And I may be wrong on this, so nobody hold me to this, but really... If you go to what you see on Instagram right now where you got the strap um, on the ankle and you're in half kneeling and you're moving forward and the strap is pulling you back mm-hmm. at your ankle, that really came from, my opinion, a mulligan technique. Yes. Where you, you got your, where you as a clinician would have your hand there, but the strap is in essence serving as your hand. Um, so that, that I would say the, the foundation version. of that was from Brian Mulligan. Yeah, it is. And, and just so you know, when you're using an elastic strap, uh, floss or whatever, that's sort of a 2D appreciation of a 3D movement. When you put your hands on somebody and push one part of the ankle in one direction, one part, that's 3D. And, and if you get Mulligan's book with both his spine mobilizations and extremely mobilizations, you'll see he's practicing 3D stabilization with what I would consider active movement. You're doing most of the movement. I'm doing most of the stabilization. And, and like I said, I, I can't uh, sing the praises of it enough. It's simply, if you have something like the SFMA or the movement screen to appreciate how much movement just changed, not just, because I'm not going to ask you, right? You're going to say, my ankle feels a little bit better. Mm-hmm. But if your balance got 10 seconds better without practicing balance, we did something. We did something to your central nervous system. And the reason I also love Mulligan is it allowed Lee and Kyle and many of us in the clinic to take that mobilization we knew we could only do three times a week and tape you into that same situation and wean you off the tape and up your exercise ante at the same time. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not my favorite technique because it's the most technical or impressive. It's my favorite technique because it's More the most practical. Buck. Yeah. More bang for your buck because you mentioned taping. Back when I was the you know athletic trainer working, you know in the trenches, I wouldn't tape traditional ankles. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got to where you if a kid had an ankle sprain on you know Friday night football and I had to get him ready for the next Friday night, he wouldn't have his ankle taped up with the white tape or ankle brace. He'd have the mulligan tape on, and they were responded ten times better than throwing the old white tape on there. And that's so. There's definitely something that, and to throw a word at you, it's the difference between orthokinematics and osteokinematics. Woo! There you yeah. go. <laughs> and look, that's that the 3D appreciation. <laughs> that's right. It's, it's, it's what's happening at your joint as it's rolling, sliding, and gliding, and what's happening to goniometry. So bending my elbow, that's osteokinematic motion. I can just measure flexion, extension. Mm-hmm. The arthrokinematic is what's happening between the joints that make up that elbow, and how can I influence the way those joints track on each other? You can't see it through the skin. So, right. Yep. Well, I definitely learned something today. I hope our audience did as well. Thanks so much for submitting these questions, guys. We really appreciate it. Uh, You can submit them to our social media channels. Uh, You can just DM us there or go to our website at movementpod.com. All right. Thanks. That'll do it for this episode of the Movement Podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please take a minute to subscribe and review. 
If you want to learn more about our system and take the next step in your movement journey, visit us at movementpod.com. Until next time, be sure to first move well, then move often.